We are starting, my name is Daniel, if there's any visitors this morning, I'm, I'm the lead pastor here. We're starting a brand new sermon series this morning, which is always great. And we are looking at the book of Hebrews. Now, we haven't done this in a while. Um, Hebrews is about 13 chapters or so, and we're going to be looking at it. I mapped it out with a Christmas break and some other potential little breaks here or there. It's going to be about right before Easter until we're done with this book. So we're not spending years in it, but we're going to take a little bit of time to walk through this book. Now, if you've um, spent time reading the scriptures and spent time in the book of Hebrews, if you're familiar with it, you know it is, on the surface, it looks like a, well, it is a challenging book. It's a toughie. There's a couple of chapters where you're like, I have no idea what's going on. I'm just going to like, flip the page here. You know, sometimes that happens in the Bible. You're just like, I don't know. There's a lot of, there's a whole page of names. I'm just going to go to the next page. But hopefully by the time we're done, you'll, you'll have a grasp of what this book is about. And I, I want to explain at the very beginning just why this is where I felt particularly called to, to walk us through. Um, we're we're ending, entering a new season where we officially joined the Vineyard group of churches. And so it's kind of this like new season, right? And there's, I was praying, just kind of foreseeing this time coming, you know, earlier this year, like, Lord, you know, what, what, what would be important for us to focus on? And the book of Hebrews, this is a good summary of why, you know. So John chapter 12, verses Nope, not 27 through 50, just, um, I think it's like 28 or 29, that's the wrong thing there. Jesus, when he was speaking, he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. That's what he said. Now, the book of Hebrews is all about Jesus. Every single page from the very first verse to the very end, it is all about Jesus. It was written to early Jewish Christians to show how this new, you know, movement, which they, you know, were calling it the Way, capital W, is it was, you know, called in the book of Acts, as many called it in the early days, how it was all about Jesus and how Jesus was superior to, to all the prophets or Moses or even angels and how it was all truly about him. And right now, in modern times, as Christianity is on decline in a nation that is rapidly secularizing, the message of the church has not changed. It has not changed. It is all about Jesus. To be a Christian, just cut the word in half. What do you have? Christ. It is about Jesus. The word Christian means little Christ. And I want people, when they come to this church, to hear about our Lord, to hear about the cleansing that comes from the cross, the purification of our sins, to hear about his resurrection and the new life that he gives us through his spirit. I want everyone who comes to this church and who walks out knowing I heard about Jesus and I met with him through the spirit. Whenever I'm at that church, this is what we hear, this is what happens. And so a unique thing we're doing, which won't be a forever pattern, um, because this is so important for us to kind of just land this, this cornerstone here, this foundational block, um, all of our small group studies are going to be kind of exploring Hebrews from different kind of ways and, and angles and speakers and so forth. But we're going to kind of like as a church, like kind of get in this river and, you know, maybe we're in different little boats here or there, but we're paddling down the same river just for this season to make sure that we have it clear. What's it all about? 
Okay, that was, you guys are asleep. Everybody's asleep. Let's wake up. Let's try it again. What, what is this all about? Thank you. All right. So here we go. The book of Hebrews. We're going to see in the first few verses. Make some grandiose claims about Jesus. I mean, crazy stuff. Big stuff. Almost insane things. We're going to look at that in a minute. But we believe at our church the Bible is truthful. It's correct. It's inspired by God. And the question that I want us to, to for the next months, you know, many months here, is that we want to ask ourselves continually as we read this, is this, do you, do you truly, like, don't just read this book, like, do you believe it? I mean, yes, be familiar with it, study it, know it, you know, that's great, but if you truly believe something, it's going to affect the way that you live, the way that you think. I don't care if you've been following Jesus for a few years or for a lifetime, this question is right here, what will you do with him? What will you do with him? What are you doing with Jesus and what he said and the things that he did? So C.S. Lewis, this is what he said. I I, I haven't met or read a quote that says it better um, than this. This is what he says. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but... I do not accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or a madman or even something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He never intended to. You guys tracking with what he's saying there? There's no middle ground with Jesus. It's either he's Lord, he's Christ, he's a son of God, or he was just a crazy nut job who, like any other you know, new cult leader, just spouted a bunch of nonsense and gathered some people through a bunch of lies for some own personal agenda. There's no middle ground with him. And that's the question we're posing to you, Right? What are you going to be doing with Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? So this sermon series is going to be taking a deep dive into this book and its claims. And so I hope that we can just be amazed by who he is and how he is uh, spoken of in the scripture. So we're going to look at this in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And again, this book is written. Uh, we have no idea who the author is. Lots of people will say, oh, is this person, that person? We don't know you know we're speculating they didn't name themselves we do know this was written to um, early Jewish Christians because it really looks back at the Old Testament all the time so hopefully also as well if you try to read this thing from front to back you have a hard time putting together the Old Testament with the New Testament like aren't they two different gods and like how does this work and maybe you've heard things like that well hopefully this book will help you be able to put those two things together as you're working through this 
But having said that little background here, let's dive in. This is the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1. In the past, and in the Red Pew Bibles, we're on page 1184. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. When this book was written, God had been revealing himself to the world in many ways. Go back in the beginning of your Bibles and see all the ways he did through Moses, through the Old Testament law, through the prophets in the Old Testament. This is very important to realize in the very first uh, few verses here. The author says many times in various ways. In some translations, actually, you know, there's a hint of, of the, the words here that means kind of partial. Or like he, he, he revealed some of himself. He revealed an incomplete kind of story here. It's like watching parts one and two of, you know, a trilogy and missing part three. It's like, what's, what's the full story here? Like, it's kind of impartial. God's work had not fully been revealed, but in the Son, it was spoken to us. In the Son, it was revealed. In the Son, he has spoken to us. He has fully revealed himself. And we have to kind of think on this on the, on the grandest of scales, Okay. I like to think big and I, I, you know, zoom out as much as I can and think and do these, like, the, the big ideas or the big realities of just life and our human existence. And on the largest scale, what these verses are saying is, is truly like all of human history then, okay, begins with the revelation of God through his son. We have to really grasp that. If you wish to seek an understanding about who you are as a human being, this human life that we're living that's so interesting and complex, and if you want to find the starting point for knowledge of who you are, understanding of this world, you start with the one whom God spoke through, who he fully revealed himself through, and that is the Son, Jesus Christ. A lot of things have claimed to be that last word. Jesus was God's last word in his revealing himself to this world. There's no like other, you know, word to be spoken. Christ was here, he left, he's on a return. And we know that there's no like future word. He's the last word. He's where uh, the, the source of all of these things come from. He's the last word spoken by God. And a lot of things throughout history have claimed to be that kind of last word. That word that gives definition to everything. Just read history. If you're a history nerd, go through history, right? Kingdom after kingdom, empire after empire has risen and falling. New ways of thinking about life and, and politics, politics, you know, new revolutions like the French Revolution, right? We're getting rid of religion forever. We have reason. We discovered it. Religion's now gone. And guess what happened? The Enlightenment ended. And guess what still stood? The church. This happens over and over again. And oftentimes there are history when these authorities like try to speak the last word and the church is like, oh, Jesus is actually the last word. You know what they try to do? They, they would try to snuff out. They still are in some nations because the Christians won't be quiet about their Jesus. They try to snuff them out and try to actually end up killing 
these Christians because they know, like, you're speaking of authority that's greater than us, and the only option you're giving us is to snuff you out so we can get our agenda pushed through. This has happened time and time again in, <clears throat> in church history, and there's a fascinating uh, quote from a guy named Tertullian. He wrote about 200 or so years, about 170 years after Christ, early church father, and he was writing a letter defending the church because this was a time where a lot of Christians were getting killed for this very thing, for confessing Jesus as the Son of God, as the last word in human history. And this is how he described the followers of Jesus, is what he said. Because this is a brand new thing still in, in, in the world. He said, we are not a new philosophy. You know, we are not a new political way or a new group of, or none of that stuff. We're not a new philosophy, but we are a divine revelation. That is why you just can't exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. And the famous quote comes after, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the most amazing thing is, when, when, when people confessed this, this kind of word, that he is the revelation of God, he is the word. And they, there's Christians, story after story, they're in the Colosseum, they're getting killed in the Roman Empire, and people see the boldness of these men and women, and in the stands, people are getting converted, watching these Christians die. It's amazing. That's a huge way of how the church spread. And that's why they can say, when people are killed in the name of Jesus, it just plants more Christians. It just keeps growing. It's like, you can't stop this. God has a mission to reveal his son, and you, any authority in this world cannot stop. The gates of hell, said Jesus, will not prevail against the church. His church will never be stamped out. It will always prove itself to be the last one standing. And so we, we continue forward here in verse 2. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways, verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Jesus, as God's son, will inherit all things. And one reason why he will inherit all things is because through him, God made the universe. Now, I think this works. Um, you ever, like, bait this has happened in my house way too often because, you know, I have a lot of kids. And so I like to cook sometimes, right? And so I cook something and I'm like so thrilled and it's in the oven or something. I'm upstairs, whatever. And it's ready and they know it's ready and they get out of the oven before I'm able to come down. And by the time I come down, guess what? It's gone. The cook didn't get his spoils, right? I missed it. You got to be quick in my house. Stuff goes gone. Just like that. Unless it's broccoli or something, and you know how that goes. But think of it this way. Jesus, it was through him that the world was created, and now he gets to inherit the very thing that through him he helped to bring into being. Jesus became a human being, and this is kind of the idea here. When we think about him, yes, he became a human being, but he pre-existed before he was a human. He always has been. You guys understand this. The fancy way of saying it, he is the pre-existent one. He, that's why he could say before Abraham was. He was, you know, well over a thousand years before Jesus. He said, before Abraham was, I am. The very name of God. 
When, when, when Moses said, what is your name? He said, I am who I am, which means no matter where you are looking in, in history, past, present, forward, whatever, God can say, I am. And Jesus Christ can say, I am. Continue on, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. I love this. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. How do we understand this? Again, grandiose things. Can you separate the brightness of the sun from the sun itself? Can you separate the noise of a rushing, the rushing waters of Niagara Falls, for those who've seen it, from the waters itself? The way we must think about Jesus and, and the Father is that he is a very radiance of God's glory. If you want to know God, you know Jesus. You cannot separate him as much as you cannot separate the brightness from the sun. In all things that exist right now, there's a couple of verses that speak into this. All things that exist are being sustained through him. He's not some passive God out there that just kind of started things and like a, you know, a, a watchmaker that some, you know, agnostic kind of people uh, think of, you know, the universe in this world. Maybe God created things and kind of wound the clock and just said, all right, I'm stepping out. That's not what scripture says. He is active now and sustaining. When, when the sun rises, you say it is being sustained by the word of Jesus. Because he wants that sun to rise and he rose it again. And that beautiful moon that we're seeing right now, it's bright and it's shining, it's gorgeous. And guess who's sustaining even the movements of the moon in this orbit? It is Jesus himself. This is how the word, the, the scriptures speak of him. And after he provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. That is a kingly authority. No one has the authority to sit down at God's right hand as if they're equal to him, except Jesus Christ. Now, all these things may be almost abstract or kind of difficult in 2023, because there's a lot of like this, this reality in just this age information, we're just bombarded by just so many books and almost just too many things, you know, uh, just flying in our face and a lot of uh, thoughts about Christ that I think if you and I are not careful to really, that's why I said we, when we read scripture, we have to actually not just read it, but, but every word, like soak it in. So am I really believing this? Because a lot of times I think we make Jesus whom we really like him to be instead of really the fullness of the testimony of what scripture says that he is. Sometimes, like Thomas Jefferson did this once, he, he didn't believe in the supernatural, didn't believe in anything that science couldn't explain, so he got scissors out and got his Bible and said, you know, all these healings and demonic possessions of Jesus, I just want to cut those out. But the teachings, they're great. He said a lot of great stuff, so let's just cut out the supernatural stuff. So you have the Jefferson Bible. Go look it up. You can probably even purchase copies today. Making Jesus who you want him to be rather than who the scripture testifies that he is. These first few verses are clearly communicating that all of Jesus is the glory of God. 
The thing is, he did not just tell people about God, he walked the earth as God. God is like an artist that had been showing humanity kind of through various sketches of himself who he was in the Old Testament, through the prophets, through all these different messages and revelations and stuff. It was like an artist kind of doing self-portraits, kind of passing it out. But, you know, self-portraits never fully um, express who somebody is until you meet that person face to face. And so God decided to actually come and walk among us and show us who he is by living among us. And this is who Jesus is. And so now we get to some of the more kind of practical parts, which may initially on the first read seem strange, but bear with us as we work through beginning in verse four. And these are um, quotes. I have the scripture references that aren't in, your, in the actual text behind me. But just to show you that these, we're going back and forth between various quotes in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures throughout verses 4 through 13. So we're going to read, or 14, we're going to read through all of this. So he, Jesus, became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? That's Psalm 2.7. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. 2 Samuel 7.14. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Do you love that? Verse 10. He also says, in the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same in your years. Will never end. Verse 13, which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? The first question you may have after reading those verses is say, where did the angel thing come from? It's like, boop random conversation just kind of thrown in here we got to remember okay this is kind of a sermon in a way but really kind of a letter to a certain a real group of people who had real questions just like you and I have questions and he's answering that so if you were the original audience she would have known why they're talking he's talking or she or whoever wrote this book is talking about angels now um, Jewish Christians okay early on and this is not just the Jewish Christians this is a lot of people in the ancient world, they were kind of obsessed with the spirit world, with angels. It took up a lot of brain space and mind space and thought space in the ancient world. It's really almost impossible for you and I to consider the worldview of ancient peoples, you know, like pre-science and and pre-modern era, because it was 100% not just like believed, yes, but just assumed by all the angels and spirits and good ones and bad ones. And these are, they all had some connection and importance in our human existence. And sometimes even, you know, entered our own human stories and, and brought changes or alterations or influences and all these things. Like this was normal for the ancient peoples. 
And apparently for these early Jewish Christians, there was some kind of maybe branch of this that, that fell into thinking extremely highly of angels. And the author is trying to say, in essence, you need to understand, like, Jesus is greater than the angels. He's, he's a son of God. Nowhere in Scripture do we see the angels being referred to of on equal status as the son, right? In verse 5 through 6, no angel was ever called God's son. In fact, says the author, in the Old Testament, God's angels were called to worship the son. The word angel just means messenger. So just to give you a little hint, if you're bending down at a kid or something, say, oh, you're just an angel. What you're really saying is, oh, you're just a messenger, just give you perspective. That's what the word means. It means messenger. A spiritual messenger, of course, from God. But that's what the word literally means. The son has a throne in verses 8 through 9. It's a forever eternal throne where he dispenses justice in his kingdom, who loves righteousness and hates wickedness and is filled with joy in verse 10 through 12. It's a permanence of who Jesus is. Everything will perish, but he will remain the same. He is sitting on a, th- a throne or is, is at the right hand of God with his feet on top of his enemies, quoting verses Psalm, uh, Psalm 110 verse 1. And such a high authority as the son spoken of, and angels were never said to have been seated at God's right hand. So how do we understand this? What does this even mean for us? Bear with me. Let's talk about wrapping paper at Christmas. This will be a helpful analogy. It's not mine. I'm borrowing it from a Bible scholar who kind of you know, gave an example like this. But um, maybe when you were a kid, you have a memory like this. And of course, you know, we do as well. Um, if you still have little kids, you probably recognize this. So sometimes at Christmas, you give a kid a gift. And maybe you bought some really cool wrapping paper. And the box is like maybe interestingly shaped. And there's something inside of the box. But parents, anybody who's seen this, what, what happens often when a kid opens up that present? What becomes more important for a while? The box or the real gift? Well, sometimes the the box and the wrapping paper, like, whoa, look at this wrapping paper, and they start wrapping stuff with it, or this is a cool box, and then there's the actual gift in the corner over there. And we're like, that's, you you, you lost the real gift. So every year, Alex and I are like, you know what, next year we're just wrapping empty boxes. That's all we're doing. And we'll save a lot of money. Because all you guys want to do is play in boxes and jump in them and like close them up, and like, you're, you're having a blast with the boxes. The idea here is you, you missed the main thing. You saw the wrapping paper and the, and the, and the colors and what, whoa, and the box, this cool shape, but you missed the gift itself for the other things that are essentially like non-essentials. You, you, you got obsessed with the wrapping paper and you missed the primary gift. Now, the ancient Greeks referred to this as our um, telos, right? The final end goal, the fulfillment, the very final, most important end point that everything kind of finds its meaning at, the very end here. This is what Hebrews is pointing us towards. Jesus is our, is our telos, the final end point, the fulfillment of all things. But what happens often is that we get distracted by tertiary things, by wrapping paper, by cool-shaped boxes, and we miss Jesus. And we get distracted by them, just like they were distracted by angels. 
They were kind of obsessed with angels and they lost the the real center of their faith, which was Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah once described this. I I love this. Um, Because this was nothing new. Israel of old used to do this as well. They would would forget Yahweh and get obsessed with their own versions of boxes and wrapping paper and miss the real, you know, God who who brought them into being. And and Isaiah says, my summary, I'll read the verse. He says, whenever you, you look for something else that's not God but try to replace his presence in your life with that thing with the wrapping paper with a botch you missed a gift you're going to find that the, the, the desires in your heart the hunger in your heart is not it will not be satisfied and whatever you're leaning on is going to be inadequate to provide any fulfillment in your heart and he described it like this Isaiah 28 verse 20 for the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in it's like when we're dependent on something that's not Jesus and we're trying to become obsessed with it and trying to look for that thing to deliver something God-sized when it's just an angel instead of Jesus, right? Um, it's like taking a nap on a couch with a throw that's just not long enough. It's winter time. You want to cuddle up on the couch and just take a nap, but your toes are sticking out. That's annoying. You're cold. No matter what you do, you're like trying to... It's just not adequate. It's not really fulfilling its goal of like keeping you warm. Ever, has, that, has that ever happened to anybody? It's just a tall man problem. I'm sure Mark Hastings has that problem, right? Where's the blankets for us people over six foot tall? They don't, they're not there. They're throws or whatever. It doesn't meet its purpose. It's inadequate. Isaiah is like, it's just like trying to sleep on the bed. It's just a little too short for you. It's not going to provide what you're looking for. Only God can do so. There are many things that look to be that final word, right? Like the kid who thinks the wrapping paper is the final gift. Like many things are, have always, you know, thrown in our face to be that final word. And I think there's another struggle here in our modern day that becomes that we want to make the final word, especially in our modern day. And I won't spend too much time on this, but I think it's really ourselves that we wish was the final word. Our own thoughts, our understanding of the world, that we can be dependent on ourselves to really make sense of everything. Jeremiah 17 speaks right into this. He says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, who turns, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Jeremiah says that trust in self will lead you to become like a, like a shrub in the desert, like a waterless place on the inside. No good, no good is going to come from that. It's like trying to live life in the desert or an uninhabited salt land. I've said it before, the greatest example of something like that is the Cherry Island landfill down here off of 495. If you go there in the winter and that little mountain over there, just, you know, this mountain on top of garbage, like, it's a legit wasteland up there. It's like imagine trying to have a barbecue up there, you know, or like camping out up there, you know. No, you're not going to do that. There's no life. It stinks up there. There's no vegetation. There's nothing of life up there. And if, if you're looking for something that's not Jesus to provide that life, you're going to find yourself in nothing but a spiritual wasteland, which is a 
completely accurate description of our modern age that surrounds us in our society, a spiritual wasteland full of men and women seeking answers but finding none, looking at their own emotions or understanding of the world as a final word in their own life, and they're just cultivating nothing but emptiness within, turning to drink, turning to substances, turning to sex, turning to whatever they can possibly do to fill that void. But it's a spiritual wasteland out there. It's a spiritual wasteland out there. The Apostle John said it in this way, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Once we grasp this and we recognize that it's not us that is the final word, but it is Christ. And the good news is that when he left this earth, he sent his spirit and he now dwells within us. We get to cultivate like depth inside of us. We get to cultivate even the life of heaven within us. A spiritually rich life. One who is just living in the grace of dipping daily deep into the wells of salvation, of love and grace and power from God. A place where even in the most difficult seasons of life, we find ourselves sustained by Jesus himself. That is, if he is your final word in life. Isaiah speaks of it like this. He says, uh, water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the deserts. He looked forward to the, the, the spiritual future of his people in Christ. He says, the water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs. I want that to be said. When you think of your life, I want that to be how you think of it. Like there's, I know my heart can be a wasteland, but man, Jesus is just making this, these wells bubble up with just the water of life in me. Like, can you describe that as your life right now? And I mean that. Like, think about that. This is what's available to us. It's offered to us. We're invited to that kind of life in Christ. If he is our final word, is that what describes your life? Just internal wells, just bubbling with the water of life. It can be yours, friends. It can be yours if he, if Jesus is your final word. Another wrapping paper, and the last wrapping paper we'll look at here, um, is, I guess there's, a, there's, a, there's so many things. Uh, living a distractive life, right? Just, just distracted instead of paying attention to these harder questions of our own existence in Jesus. You'd rather just, you know, pull out your phone and, and look at memes all day. I do that too much right? Memes are funny, and I fall into that. Maybe you'd prefer to, you know, uh, just given to the fear of just our political culture today, right, and be just uh, lost in fears, if fear is the final word, and we need, you know, our politicians to, to save us. Every year, I just start laughing, like, every politician, vote to, for me to save the world. It's like, no, like, you're not going to save us all. All, you know, anyway. It's, it's hilarious every year. The topic is vast and broad. Material things, substances, careers, your own insecurities, abilities, or lack thereof, your own children, parenting, schooling, the American dream, all these things uh, come our way as temptations to become the final word in our life. And the question is, is Jesus truly the final word? 
There's another verse here that speaks on, of what happens when we lean on something that is not the final word. Uh, Israel was in a season of war and invasion, and, and instead of really praying to God for help, they went to Egypt for help. And this is how he says in Isaiah 36, he says, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. I want to use that as a metaphor for what happens when we focus on something and try to pull, you know, find uh, everlasting life in it or just hope in it that's not Christ, some other final word. It's like putting your hand leaning on a spear. It's going to sting you. It's going to cut through you. It's going to bite you. It's going to hurt. You're going to fall on your face. And so lastly, as we close here, as a final word to our church here, um, to have Christ as our final and greater word, we remain committed to what truly matters here. To understand that Jesus is the final word means that as a church, we have our aim, we have our compass as we walk forward in our new season. This summer, we as the elders were, were, were meeting, uh, we had a little mini kind of retreat locally, and we were just kind of praying through, like, how can we talk about ourselves to our neighbors and the community um, in a way that communicates who we are? Simply, just a, one little quick, you know, few words, like, because, you know, our attention span in 2023 is so short, we need like six words to describe something, and then if not, people are lost. Like, I ain't reading that full sentence, right? So how can we do that? Can we do that? We prayed, and we thought, how can we, you know, the way that we understand, you know, how God has crafted and shaped this church, how can we do that? So there's six words that we came up with. You'll be finding these all over the place soon as we redo a lot of our stuff, but um, Christ-centered Spirit-empowered, community-focused. Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, community-focused. So when somebody says, who is Emmanuel Church? What are you guys about? Well, in short, we're Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, and community-focused. All right, more to that later on, but that first piece, Christ-centered, is just crucial. This prevents us from being a church that's overly concerned about anything else, our own image, our own institutional reputation, uh, but more concerned with our witness of being that of Christ. This prevents us from being defined and distracted by minor teachings or doctrines, like, I don't want to be known as like the end times church, you know, us that church that is obsessed with that, or, or that, you know, some churches are obsessed with the King James Version, or, you know, you, name it. I mean, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of things in this book. It's a big book. There's a whole lot of things in there, a lot of things to wrestle with, but the primary thing to wrestle with is Jesus. And that is going to be what we are known to be wrestling with here, is following after Jesus Christ primarily. That is our mission. You guys tracking with this? Jesus is the final word. None of the other things are the final word. They're interesting. They're, they are important. They're in Scripture. But Jesus is the primary one who guides us. That's why we preach Christ crucified and hope in the resurrection here week in and week out at our church. If Jesus is lifted high, he draws people to himself. First, uh, 2 Timothy um, uh, 2, 3 through 4 says, God does desire everyone to be saved. And that is why we raise Jesus as high and glorious and lifted up here. And that's a great way to enter into our time of communion right now.